You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I want to dive in now to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19. If you would, stand with me. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we always stand together for the reading of God's Word, and typically I read to you, but last week we pulled something different, and instead of me reading to you, we read together, which always feels a little bit wonky and weird, um, but it is good to hear each other reading, even if we don't stay together very well. So if you have a copy of God's Word in your hand, uh, you can read it there, or it should be on the screen for you to follow along as well. Um, just let your voice be heard as we read God's Word together, beginning in verse 12. Ready? Get set, go. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I want to read verse 19 one more time. Just, I'm happy just to read it to you. So hear these words again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to this text in your word help us to trust this morning that you are sovereign and that you are good and that you are kind Lord the subject of suffering is not an easy one to approach in your word so God I I ask that you would come and speak to us on this topic. Speak into the places of hurt, into the places of brokenness, maybe even into the places of just hard-heartedness because of suffering that we in this room may have endured. Help us to um, commune with you in that place. Pray that you would speak life-giving words healing words, comforting words, um, transforming words. Help us to behold uh, in the midst of this. Help us to behold the power of the cross, the assurance of the empty tomb, 
and the hope of heaven. We trust that you would do this work and then some. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you may be seated. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> seems to me that the theme of this text is pretty simple. Suffering uh, for the sake of Christ. It would be suffering as a Christian. Not one of the easiest topics to address. Um, I think especially in the culture that we live in, for a number of reasons. Okay. Not an easy topic to address because I think for us there, there can be a massive disconnect um, between the kind of suffering that we might experience here in America and the, the kind of suffering um, that actually happens in the Bible with the biblical audience. Um, we, we are far removed in our context from the context of suffering as a Christian in the Bible, as well as, even if you think about the rest of the known world today, a suffering as a Christian in the rest of the known world is far different than our experience here in America. Nevertheless, um, it's no secret that, that being a Christian right now in this day and age, in our context as Americans, uh, is becoming increasingly more difficult as the years go on. I say that also knowing that where we all live, our frame of reference, what has shaped and molded our hearts and our minds and our, our experience um, still vastly different, right? Like nobody's being tortured here uh, where we live. Nobody's being beheaded on a daily basis. Nobody's being arrested for simply being a Christian. Nobody's being crucified on the sides of the street and lit on fire, right? We're, we don't, we're not experiencing that here. The only time we really experience that here is when it comes across our news feeds, and, and until you experience something like that in person on a daily basis for years, we just are going to have a hard time making the connection in an appropriate and biblical way. And so I think it's good um, just to acknowledge that it's hard for us to imagine what true biblical suffering for Jesus is actually like. Uh, we were talking about this earlier in a meeting before our gathering, that it, it, at times um, in America, I think especially, we, we can kind of get a, like a suffering complex. Like oh, almost everything is some kind of persecution that we're facing. And it's, it, it, can, it can get kind of wonky and weird sometimes. So just acknowledging those things, uh, thinking through those things um, this week, I think that if there are some kinds of suffering that we might experience in America for being Christian, um, while I do think it's typically pretty light compared with the rest of the world, compared with the biblical audience, it doesn't mean that it's not difficult. So I just, I think it's appropriate to acknowledge that suffering for the sake of Christ is difficult. Suffering as a broad topic is difficult, period. Um, but there is a pinpoint, so to speak, on the suffering 
that we see in this text, and, and it's suffering for the name of Christ, suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering because you are a Christian. It's that kind of suffering, not the broader category of suffering because I'm a human, okay? Um, so we're going to try to pinpoint that, and I think in our American experience, I think it's also appropriate to kind of maybe categorize a little bit some of the places where we do experience this. And so I, I think that we do, at least I have, I think maybe some of you have, have maybe experienced a kind of a, a relational suffering for Christ, or maybe um, you could say maybe a kind of an educational suffering for Christ, or, or maybe vocational. Like these are areas and categories in our relationships, in our education system at times, and I think in our vocations, there is definitely opportunity for suffering, and, and I think some of us in this room may have um, experienced some of that, right? So, so think about this. If you've experienced or, or felt the pain of the loss of some kind of relationship, or even tension in a relationship, right? Because of your commitment to Jesus and somebody else's non-commitment, maybe even antagonistic commitment against Jesus. You, know, you can see these scenarios in relationships, whether that's you know, parents to a child who's walking away from the faith and parents are trying to walk with Jesus, right? There's, there's going to be some relational suffering there. You might see this in a context where uh, you have uh, um, a husband and a wife, right? Where, where one spouse is, is doing everything they can to follow Jesus and be engaged with the things that God calls us to, and the other spouse is resistant to that, bare minimum. These might be some places where we would experience that in relationship. Um, or may, maybe in our educational system, whether you've come up through, you know, elementary to middle school to high school, whether you've been in uh, our, our higher education in college, there's going to be times in those places where you're going to brush up against something that's going to be contrary to what you've been reading in God's Word and what you've been learning and, and, and where your faith is at in Christ. And in those moments, there's going to be tension, right? How do I walk through this? Um, and so the, there, there's going to be some kind of suffering there. Um, or, and lastly, if you think about your vocation, wherever you work, um, there may be some levels of tension there because we're working in a secular workplace, if you want to use the term secular. It's a term I'm not a fan of anyways. But to use that term and say, hey, you know, I actually work in a place where it's not full of people who believe the same thing that I do. Therefore, there's going to be moments where you have conflict and tension and people may say some things about you or, or ostracize you, kind of treat you differently sometimes, right? Um, so I, I do think that there are places that we do experience this in our culture. Um, personally, uh, personally, I've experienced some of these things myself. We had family members, um, people who were close friends, um, where I experienced the, the pressure um, of, 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 of just not um, agreeing with something, um, and they're headed a direction that went way against my biblical convictions. And, and in, in those moments with those family members, there, there's tension, there's conflict, there's even been separation. Um, experience the pressure of helping my kids, especially helping my kids walk through some very heavy topics as they 
navigate the school system that they're part of. Um, I, you know, one of the easiest things to do in those moments is to somehow think that oh, the school system is my enemy, right? And I, like, I'm a fighter, so it would be really easy for me to kind of slip into that. Um, but we were talking about this, I think, um, in, our, in a meeting earlier this morning, too. Like, how immature of me to think that way. Like, to think that somehow a school system full of teachers and administrators would be my enemy. When the scriptures are really clear that we have one enemy, right? I think his name is Satan. Um, you know, we, we do not war against flesh and blood. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I think about that. Um, uh, even, even as a minister, okay, even as a pastor, I have experienced some levels um, uh, of, of suffering for Jesus. Uh, there's been times where I have taken a stance on something that is definitely a, you know, a non-negotiable issue biblically um, and then been blasted by other ministers who, I guess, see things differently. My initial thought is always like, I don't know what Bible they're reading. Like, it's pretty clear to me, you know, it, I don't know if you can hear some of the pride maybe or the arrogance in that even. I do think that immediately. I try to tone that down as I walk through those seasons because I kind of just want to go on blast. But, but I have been blasted by others who I think read the same Bible um, but land in a different place um, on, on topics that I would say these are central topics. These aren't just secondary topics where we can practice some good grace with one another. These are actually central topics and, and in those situations have definitely experienced, I, I think, what you might call some kind of suffering for Christ in my vocation. So I think when you think through these things, the question becomes this. It becomes, what are we to do? What are we to do when we begin to suffer in this way? What are we to do uh, when, when a relative or, or a friend kind of flips us the bird and, and walks away from us and is angry and has all sorts of things to say simply because we will not compromise a biblical conviction. I mean, even when you say, let me say this, even today in our culture, even among what you might call evangelical Christianity, there is an argument behind the scenes about whether or not we should even say the term biblical conviction. Like, what, what I think what's happening in, in the background oftentimes is um, there is a force, Satan, who is, from day one, has sought to take away the authority and the foundation of how we would live. And, and, if, and, if, and if Satan can get us to question or, or lay aside the Bible... And just then saying, it's no longer a biblical conviction, it's just now a conviction. And then you begin to ask the question, well, where's that conviction based on? Well, it's my interpretation of the Bible. You understand what's happening in the shift there? We're shifting away from what the Bible clearly says, and we're shifting into a humanistic kind of a thinking which says, I am the authority. So this is, this is just kind of like a panorama of thoughts in my mind as I think about all of the different nuances that affect the topic of suffering for Jesus. And the question is, what do you do? Right? What do you do when, when suffering comes into your life merely because you call yourself a Christian or because you follow Jesus or because you claim to hold the Bible in high regard. 
Um, and Peter has some answers for us. Thankfully, God's word has answers for us. And Peter begins, um, first of all, by basically saying, hey, you know what? If you're a believer, you ought to expect suffering. And that's a hard one. You ought to expect to suffer, right? Here's how he says it. Look back at your Bible uh, with me. He says this in verse 12. He says, beloved. Now, I love how he starts there. Another version that we read this morning uh, said something like, my friends or dear friends. Um, beloved carries. I mean, think about when, when somebody says, beloved, I, I love you. I mean, it's a term of endearment. And that's what Peter's doing. Peter's not saying, hey, I am the great pastor who has all the answers for you. He is saying, you are my beloved. I'm with you. You're my friend. I'm walking through this with you. So I love how Peter just kind of comes alongside, right? Beloved, do not be surprised. In other words, expect. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, the fiery trial, that brings some images to mind, doesn't it? If you're familiar with the Bible, you might remember... um, Three little guys from um, VeggieTales, Shad, Rad, and Benny. Well, that was VeggieTales. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Fiery trial. They were in a fire. Why? Because they didn't bow down to the man. No, not the man. They just didn't bow down to the big statue. Because they refused to bow down. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't out picking fights, okay? Uh, they just simply said, I'm sorry, I cannot compromise, Y'all do whatever you want to do. I can't compromise. Um, fiery trial reminds me of that. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, you know, the perplexing thing about suffering is that it almost always catches us off guard, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't know hardly anybody who was like, oh, saw that coming a million miles away. No. <laughs> Mostly, when suffering enters into our life, it's, it's more like, man, I didn't see that coming. That blindsided me. I didn't expect this to happen in my life, right? Otherwise, I, I, don't, I don't know that it would be suffering. It feels strange, right? It feels out of place. Never expected that friend or that family member or that spouse maybe or that that child um, to go off their rocker the way that they did. It's surprising when when someone unleashes their hatred on us through social media. Now I would add a caveat that we talked about too that you know if somebody unleashes their hatred and stuff on you on a social media post and you're the one that started it because you posted something stupid, then you deserved it, right? Like, there's consequences for our actions. So, um, but when somebody just out of the middle of nowhere just, like, puts you on blast, um, or if you're in the school cafeteria, right? Walk through that with some of our kids, what the school cafeteria can be like at times, or the hallway of your workplace. When that happens, it can be surprising. You didn't wake up that morning and go, hey, I'm expecting to get put on blast this morning and have tons of conflict and tension between X, Y, or Z. We just don't expect to suffer for our faith. Now, I would also say that part of this, I think, is because we live in America, right? There is a part of it that we, we live in America, but I also think that there is this other part where deep down inside, we have a tendency to buy into um, a, a, a gospel um, of prosperity, 
right? Um, it basically says that, you know, if, if I belong to God, I'm never going to experience hardship. Anybody, anybody ever give into that a little bit? Okay, at least two of us, right? I mean, it's not, I don't know that we necessarily put those words to it. Like, I'm categorizing it in a way that, but there is a sense like, okay, I'm going to church now. I'm reading my Bible now. I'm following Jesus now. Right? I'm, I'm serving. I'm giving. Like, I think nothing can touch me. There's a sense of that, I think. Like, I'm on God's team now. God's team wins all the time, and the other team loses all the time. So I don't think I'm going to face much suffering. And I just, I, you know, I think that that has a tendency to seep into our lives. Easy to buy into that idea that if we do right, if we trust in Christ, then the result is going to be his protection over us, not going to have to suffer much. But there's a problem with that kind of thinking, and the biggest problem standing in front of us is this Bible. That's the problem. Unless, like I've said, unless we reword it or reread it in a way that is really strange... Um, if you just take literal plain readings out of Scripture beginning to end, the grand narrative of the Bible, um, we find God's people suffering for their faith often, right? I referenced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Think about Daniel in the lion's den, right? What is that? That's that picture. Um, you think of, uh, you could even think of Job in a sense also deeply suffering and if you look at job i've always said you get a picture of a sovereign god who first actually engages satan it's not that satan engaged him god engaged satan and said hey yo satan what you been up to have you thought about my boy job you should go afflict him for a while like that'll jack with your picture of a good and faithful and kind and patient god when you read that and you have to think about that and digest the sovereignty of god and why he would do something like that uh, you go to uh, Stephen, right? I don't know if I mentioned Stephen. Gets stoned for his faith. Not stoned for his faith like he's smoking a joint. Stoned for his faith with rocks. And the guy holding the rocks is a dude named Saul, right? Who later becomes the Apostle Paul. Who also gets beaten for his faith. Apostle John um, gets banished to the island of Patmos. The reality here is when, when Peter says, hey, don't be surprised by this. You should expect to suffer for your faith. It seems like when I think about this broad category, it seems to me like suffering is a tool in the hand of a sovereign God. That tool is meant to test or purify or strengthen our faith. You can cross-reference this with 1 Peter 1.7 or 4.1-2. through 2. Um, whenever I go through intense seasons of suffering, and especially when it's suffering in my faith, what I try to remember is this. I try to remember that Jesus himself suffered for my faith, which is an interesting way to say it, interesting way to think about it. Jesus himself suffered for my faith. He suffered at the cross so that I would have the opportunity to trust him, right? And here's the thing, Jesus wasn't surprised by this. Uh, In fact, it was something that he absolutely expected, knew was coming, and, and with the joy that was set before him, according to Hebrews, he ran headlong towards the cross. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that that Jesus set his face towards the cross. He set his face, like he was determined to head 
towards suffering. He expected it and he ran towards it, not running away from it, but also not running towards it in, in necessarily an antagonistic way either. So, so I think Jesus suffered so I could have that opportunity to trust him, right? So if Jesus experienced that kind of suffering, then, then, then we should too. We should expect that. So think about this. Think about the last time you did experience some kind of suffering for your faith. And, and, and after that experience, what was the other side of that experience like? You suffered for your faith. You suffered for Christ. Someone rejected you, spoke ill of you, hurt you. And on the other side of it, there's a result, right? You ever experienced a season like that where when you come out the other side of that suffering in that season and, and you, you actually feel stronger in your faith? Maybe you're worn out, yeah. But, but if, you, if in the midst of that season you're doing everything you can to cling to Jesus, to cling to his finished work at the cross, to cling to the truth of the empty tomb and the, the hope of heaven, then you come out the other side and it's like, I see Jesus a little bit differently than I did before, and my faith is a little bit stronger than it was prior to this. I have a, I have a clear picture of Christ at that cross. I have a more resolute understanding of the power of the empty tomb. I have, a, I have what I think is a greater hope now in the promise of heaven because nothing on this earth could satisfy. And I get that a little bit more now on the other side of this suffering. You ever had that experience? Where would you be in your faith if you didn't have that experience? See, when you, when you survey the work of our crucified, risen, returning Savior in the midst of suffering for Him. You may not be getting your head cut off. You may not be getting threatened with your life. You may not be facing some kind of jail time, literally, for your faith. Um, but don't you feel, in the midst of that, like, like a little bit of joy maybe welling up inside of you? A, a little bit of joy uh, because you know as you cling to the gospel, this message of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior in the midst of that suffering, do you feel a little bit of joy welling up inside of you? Because here's what I think starts to bubble out. You begin to be reminded that uh, even though the last chapter has been written, hasn't been read yet, Right? Like, the journey's not over. We haven't reached the end destination yet. And you and I know, if we're reading our Bibles and we're following Jesus, we, we know what the end result is. Heaven. No more mourning. No more tears. No more sin. No more hardship. Complete, total peace. And, and we know that. It's been written. But we haven't experienced it yet. So you're longing for that. You're looking forward to that. And that, I think, is what brings up some kind of joy in the midst of us walking through that kind of suffering. I think this is why Peter says that you should not only expect suffering, but number two, you and I should be rejoicing when we suffer for Christ, right? 
You rejoice when you suffer. Look at your Bibles with me again. Peter says it this way, verse 13. What does he say? He says, but rejoice. Now, now you'll notice here, he's going to basically say rejoice twice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That last phrase, when his glory is revealed, what is that pointing to? That's pointing to the end. It's pointing to the last chapter that has been written, but not yet read. We haven't experienced it yet, but we know we look forward to that last moment when Christ's glory will be completely revealed. So you can rejoice now in the hope of heaven. You see, rejoicing in the midst of suffering for Christ, um, it's not the same as the happiness you feel when your circumstances get better. Okay, so I don't want us to be misled into thinking that somehow the circumstances of this thing that's caused us to suffer is now going to change right now and I'm going to feel happy. Sure, that might happen, right? Um, but it's not that kind of happiness. Uh, when, when, when the Bible talks about rejoicing in the midst of suffering uh, for Christ, what we're talking about is we're talking about this overwhelming sense of pure joy. Pure joy that is not attached to circumstances. A pure joy even in the midst of deep grief over the circumstances of your pain. How often... Have you experienced that kind of a miraculous thing? I mean, that's miraculous. Okay, my, my natural tendency when I go through a season of suffering is not to like be walking around bubbly, laughing, full of joy, unless I'm just emotionally unhinged. Okay, and y'all know I have those moments. You do too. <laughs> no matter how well you put on your Sunday faces, <laughs> right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about this miraculous picture of deep down inside, there's a sense of joy right alongside the grief of the circumstances that aren't changing. And it's a joy that, that lasts. It's a joy that doesn't go away. You may have your moments, right, where you're like, I am so sick of this. I'm so tired. I just want to tap out, take a nap, hide in my garage, whatever it may be. There's a deep sense of joy. This is the kind of joy in the midst of suffering that can only be found in one place. It's the same place that, that I think when Spurgeon says, hey, whenever you read the Bible, read the text, make a beeline for the cross. Okay, uh, That's where joy can be found as we share in Christ's suffering. You're, you're, you're only going to find that kind of joy as you look forward forward to his return in glory as you're, as you're pondering his bloody, horrifying work at the cross on your behalf, my behalf. And as you think about the power of that empty tomb in the midst of that, there's joy because you know Satan beat, I'm sorry, Satan got beat by a cross and an empty tomb and a Savior who walked through all of that and left us with this promise of heaven, right? So I think this is what it means to not only be filled with joy in the midst of suffering, uh, but to also be blessed. How about that? Uh, to be blessed in the midst of suffering. 
Now, I, I don't think most of us think about being blessed in the midst of suffering. But Peter does say, that's the third thing he says, be blessed when you suffer. Um, or, or you are blessed when you suffer. Look at it in verse 14. Look at the way he says it. He says, hey, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So it's not necessarily you will be blessed, although it fits, but you are blessed. The construct of the language is a present tense. You are blessed in the midst of that suffering. I believe there's blessing that comes on the back end too. But in the midst of it, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So he gives you the reason. You might say, why would I feel blessed? Why would I be blessed in the midst of suffering for Christ? Because, he says, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So, we should not only expect to suffer for the sake of Christ, but we should also rejoice when we suffer. How? By looking to the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. And when you're doing this, what's going to happen is you're going to realize just how extremely blessed you are in the midst of that suffering. So here's been my experience. My experience is that when suffering comes into my life as a believer, um, I usually begin to question God. Anybody else do that? Can I see hands? Who join me in this? Yeah. I, I begin to question God. I do. Um, I begin to question His goodness. I, I question His presence. I question His faithfulness. I, I, I question His kindness. I, I question His love. I question everything about God in those seasons. Uh, it always reminds me, and it's a prayer that a few of us have prayed together numerous times, God, I believe, help me in my unbelief, right? It's that picture. Like, I've got this little, like, itty-bitty, tiny shred <laughs> of belief. I'm clinging to that itty-bitty little shred as tightly as I can, and I don't know if I'm going to make it to tomorrow. I believe. Help me in my unbelief because I feel like there's a massive part of me that's not believing you right now, God. That, that I have a tendency to go there in the midst of suffering. I'm wondering, God, did I do something wrong? Why have you forsaken me? Um, which brings me back to the cross, doesn't it? It's just difficult in that, those moments of suffering to say, I, I'm actually blessed. Um, I, I don't meet very many people who are like, Life sucks right now, but you know what? I'm blessed because of it. Life sucks, and it's proof that I'm blessed. Well, really? You need a counselor. <laughs> but actually, this is precisely what Peter is saying. He's, he's saying, you're blessed when you suffer insults for the name of Christ. I mean, in a very real sense, Peter is saying that we can actually, think of this word, we can rest assured, assurance. You can be assured in the midst of that suffering that you actually have the Spirit of God resting on you if you're suffering for the name of Christ, okay? If you're just suffering because of your own sin and because of your own stupid behavior, that's a completely different category. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. But if you're suffering for the name of Christ because you have actually taken a stand and you have said that this crosses the line for my biblical 
convictions. I cannot go there with you. Um, and you've done this in a loving and a winsome way. I mean, there's all sorts of categories we can put around this, right? If you're suffering for the name of Christ because you've actually followed Christ in this, you're suffering like him, then you have the assurance that the Spirit of God is, is resting upon you. But what Peter basically says here is this. Suffering for the name of Christ is not the mark of a curse. I just think there are times in the midst of suffering where I'm like, I don't think I'm blessed, I think I'm cursed. Right? I, I, there must be something wrong here. And we'll get to that in a moment too because maybe there's a sense in which God needs to do some work in us through that suffering, yes. The suffering for the name of Christ is not the mark of a curse, it's the mark of a blessing. And, and it's the mark of the blessing of the cross, the empty tomb, and the hope of heaven. That's the mark that's on you. I don't know about you, but when I think about that kind of assurance, that the suffering actually proves that God's Spirit is with me, when, when, that, when, that, like when that biblical truth sets in in the midst of a season of suffering, and I gain that kind of assurance and, I, and a resoluteness, and I go, okay, okay, God, I believe you, I trust you, thank you for reminding me of that, then in those moments, what do you want to do? In those moments, I want to glorify God. That's what I want to do in those moments. Once I begin to realize, okay, this suffering is actually proof that God and I are good, and God is good, now I, I want to glorify Him. When I survey the blessing of suffering through the lens of the gospel, then in those moments I'm motivated to glorify Him. And that's, that's really the next thing Peter says. <coughs> glorify God when you suffer. Verses 15 and 16. Here's how Peter says it. Look at it with me. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, <coughs> let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now here's the thing. <coughs> suffering uh, suffering kind of has a funny way of bringing out the worst in us sometimes, doesn't it? When you think about it. Um, when things <laughs> go wrong, and when, when suffering enters, it just it squeezes you. Right? It's, it's, like, it's like when you tread on grapes, a certain kind of a wine comes out. There's many of us in this room know what that's like, right? You can have good wine, you can have bad wine. I don't know if it depends on the socks that you have on your feet when you're treading those grapes. I don't know. You have good wine, you have bad wine. When you get pressed, when you get squeezed, something comes out. When we get tested by a fiery trial, sometimes I think what oozes out of us is not so glorifying to God, right? I think of a few curse words or two that oftentimes might want to come out in the midst of suffering and hardship. Um, we complain, don't we? I don't think complaining is a spiritual gift <laughs> or a spiritual fruit. I wish it was because if it, if it was, I'd be a really holy dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, God, why couldn't you put that in there as a spiritual virtue? Because I'm really good at that. <laughs> you put the things in there that I'm not so good at. Oh, I, I get it. You know, broken, sinful. We complain, we get angry, get cynical, pick fights. I mean, I pick on social media every week, don't I? Somebody could say amen, right? I do pick on social media and our use of it 
You know, it's like we get, we just, we turn into these keyboard warriors. We hide out behind our keyboards and we're like, I'm going to do my deed for Jesus this week. <laughs> Zing! <laughs> Thankfully, everybody in the world knows I'm a Christian. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, well, I don't know about that. I'd like to see you face to face with said person and see how you actually interact with a real person. And see if, yeah. Complain, get angry, get cynical, pick fights, play the pity party, right? Poor, pitiful me. Um, and sometimes... Sometimes we just sit in the corner of the room and we pout. Um, a lot of times that's what oozes out. But what Peter does here is, is he, he reminds us that we are actually to, we're actually called to glorify God in the midst of our suffering. Uh, we're called to glorify Him when we suffer for His sake. And, and here's the thing, to, to, to suffer for Christ and, and to allow that suffering to then lead us into some kind of sin like murder, which I'm sure none of us in this room would do unless you listen to what Jesus says when he says, oh, if you were angry with somebody for no, no good reason, um, then you are a murderer. Uh, or, or stealing, right? Or, or pot stirring. I think he uses the word meddling. No pot stirrers in this room, right? We're not pot stirrers, are we? pun-in-cheek. It's sarcasm, right? One of the biggest posters is the dude on the stage. Or any other kind of evil practice, he says, junk drawer type of a thing. Uh, that to do that would be shameful. That's basically what Peter's saying. To let suffering cause us to sin would be a very shameful thing. But to suffer for Christ and then to let that suffering actually lead us to glorify God in the person and work of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior, in that, there can be no shame whatsoever. It's always important to ask, uh, in the midst of any circumstance, but especially in the midst of suffering, always important to ask this question. This is a question I like to ask myself. Uh, didn't originate with me. originated with some book that I read that's on my shelf now. Um, always important to ask, like, hey, is, is what I'm thinking right now uh, uh, what I'm feeling right now, uh, what I'm getting ready to say right now, and what I'm getting ready to do right now in the midst of this suffering, is that thing actually glorifying to God? And, and it might even be good to get out of my own head and go run it by somebody else whom I trust, not just somebody who's going to give me a little pat on the back, but somebody who's actually going to speak straight truth to me, Right? I might need to hear that just so that I don't start justifying my own actions because I'm good at that. I don't know about you. <coughs> but I can find all sorts of ways to justify what I'm about to do and make it seem like it's probably the right thing. It's also very important in the midst of this to ask if this suffering that I'm enduring is actually a form of God's judgment. Now, this is a hard one, okay, because um, when you talk about judgment, um, it's just a tough topic. Um, we need to be asking God... Uh, is this suffering that I'm enduring right now for you, is this a form also of your judgment that's actually meant to bring about some kind of cleansing or, 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 or holiness, growth in my life, right? Um, so really the, the fifth thing that, uh, that he says is embrace judgment when you suffer. Here's how he says it. Verse 17 through 18, he says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So I would say we, we probably enjoy the topic of 
judgment probably just about as much as we enjoy the topic of suffering, don't we? Um, so Peter just finds this really unique way of bringing two really heavy topics together. Um, thank you, Peter. Thank you, God, right? Because he's behind this. When he ties these things together as though they should be something that is expected and even embraced in the life of the believer. So, so when you read the story of Israel all the way from beginning, right, to end, you read all throughout the Old Testament, uh, you find that, that suffering and judgment, they often go hand in hand. They kind of hold hands together, okay? Uh, and God uses suffering as a form of judgment uh, that really is meant to cleanse and to transform his people. It's meant to root out any areas of sin in our lives. And then in the midst of it, it's meant to turn us back in repentance to our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. I think of Jeremiah probably the most when God comes to him and basically tells him, hey, eat this scroll, get God's word in you. And then he gives him this vision of this massive boiling pot dumping over on the nations. And one commentary I read, and you guys have probably heard me say this, is like, oh God, please bring your cleansing judgment on us because that hot water is what would cleanse the nation later. So that's the picture I have in my head when, when I read the Bible. Spurgeon said this. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. What's he saying? Spurgeon had learned uh, the importance, I think, and if you've ever read stories about Spurgeon, his journey, the pain, the suffering he endured. He'd learned the importance of examining his own soul in the midst of suffering. He'd learned to see God's hand of judgment on him as a, as a divine act of cleansing in his life. Sadly, though, like if I examine my own soul, I find that I immediately have a tendency to kind of curse the waves of suffering rather than kiss them. I'm learning, though, at 43, when suffering comes into my life, God is actually working to cleanse my heart and cleanse my soul of anything that I look to, anything I long for. I long for comfort. I long for control. I long for acceptance. I long for power. I look to things to satisfy those longings. And at the end of the day, our good father, he used two really small trees and three nails with a whip in the hands of his enemies to inflict the suffering of the cross on his very own son when I should have been the one who received that punishment, that judgment. See, the suffering that I now face in this life as a redeemed saint of God is light and momentary affliction in comparison with the cross of Christ that actually should have belonged to me. So, so, so the suffering that I now face is meant to humble me, right? It's meant to humble you. And I am humbled. When I think about the grace of God in my life, the fact that God has actually opened my heart to Him, whenever I think about those who have yet to surrender to Him and, and the future that lies before them, if they never come to repentance, then what, what should happen? Not a kind of an arrogant pride like, well, you're stupid. More like a kind of a humbled humility that, that senses and feels a compassion to 
towards those who were there. Like what, what, what could actually be a better reminder to trust in God in the midst of suffering than the reminder that some people are headed towards absolute eternal suffering in separation from God and that this was the crowd that I once was part of, right? We should embrace judgment when we suffer. We should also trust in God when we suffer, which is the very last thing that Peter says trust God when you suffer. Verse 19, we read it twice earlier. Read it one more time. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And the funny thing about suffering is that it often exposes the things that we put our trust in. It often exposes the things that we put our trust in. Suffering can be chaotic, agreed? Suffering can be a lonely place, agreed? Uh, It can feel really helpless when you're suffering. You can feel hopeless when you're suffering. And so you think about those feelings. Those feelings bring bring up deep longings that I trust in something to, to satisfy. When life feels chaotic, I long for some kind of peace, and therefore I try to control things, right? If I feel lonely, then what I'm longing for is some kind of comfort, some kind of acceptance. And I try to find that through maybe unhealthy relationships or maybe, maybe some kind of mind-numbing addiction, right? could just be simply sitting down and watching 15 hours of TV and binging. Uh, when, when you or I feel helpless, uh, we long for power, right? Because we feel powerless and we try to gain power in all sorts of sinful ways feel hopeless. You long for a set of different circumstances. You try to change those circumstances. And maybe, maybe you do that by chasing sex or chasing money or chasing fame or chasing accomplishments. I don't know. The crazy reality in all of this is that God in his sovereignty actually uses suffering to reveal those sinful and rebellious tendencies in our lives while also simultaneously, at the same time, painting a picture of his own faithfulness. I think that there is nothing that makes God's faithfulness shine brighter than the picture of my own faithfulness on the canvas. You see that in in a bloody cross. You see that in the empty tomb. You see that in the promise of heaven. God uses suffering to bring us to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of His only begotten Son. God uses suffering to deepen our trust in Him as our faithful Creator. It's the reason why I've said this a thousand times. It's the reason that I hate the word reckless in the reckless love song, and I love the word steadfast. I would replace the word reckless with steadfast. If you read the Psalms over and over again, you'll find that phrase over and over and over and over again. Steadfast is faithful never quits, never stops, always chasing, always there, never leaves, never forsakes, never changes, always loving, despite how unlovable I am. He's faithful. So, so as we conclude, um, so I want to encourage you a bit as we conclude. Like if you've trusted in, in the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, then um, you can expect to suffer, right? 
you're like, hey, I thought you were going to encourage us. Oh, well, you can expect to suffer. Um, you, you can rejoice in the blessing of suffering. You can glorify God as he uses that suffering to cleanse you of your sinful patterns, to deepen your trust in him. And, and as you experience that suffering for the sake of Christ, my, my prayer for all of us is, is that the shadow of the bloody cross and that the, the emptiness of the tomb of Christ and the hope of heaven, that that would actually become bigger than your suffering. That the suffering of Christ, that the power of Christ, the empty tomb, that the, the promise of the returning Christ, that that would become bigger than your suffering. Because I think that then and only then are you and I going to be able to experience true joy true blessing, true cleansing, true deepening of our faith that that suffering was actually designed to do. So what should you do when suffering comes into your life? At the end of the day, you, you can stand in the hallway of your own soul during those dark nights of that suffering when it walks into the room and you can say, welcome my slave. Come and do what my father designed you to do. That phrase didn't originate with me. I'm not that good when it comes to words. Uh, I think I first heard that at a conference uh, probably five, six years ago in a really intense season of ministry and life. And the man who preached, I think this text um, ended that way. So with that kind of perspective, you actually can practice 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. You can expect suffering. You can rejoice in suffering. You can be blessed in suffering. You can glorify God in that suffering. You can embrace judgment while suffering. You can trust God amidst suffering. Not easy at all. I'm not going to say this is easy. But if the same Father who designs the suffering also gives me his very own spirit to endure said suffering, then you and I can both say, Welcome, my slave. Come and do what my Father has designed you to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Pray, God, that you would take what was just preached and apply it over our hearts and souls now over the next few moments. ask that you would apply the shed blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus over our hearts, our thoughts, our emotions, our lives, our experiences as we've thought deeply and sought to drink from your word deeply on this topic of suffering. I trust you to do that work. Amen. Hey, would you all stand with me? As we close, we close the same way every week. We always close with communion on purpose uh, so that we might apply... You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.